Good morning, everybody. So good to see you guys here. Thanks for coming together to worship the Lord this morning. Thank you, Dylan, for preaching the past few weeks. I, I got, boy, I'll tell you what, I got sick about 4 a.m. two weeks ago, and I, and I knew there's no way. <laughs> I, could, I mean, if, I guess if I had to come up here and lay down and preach, I could. But uh, I texted Dylan at 4 a.m. and said, hey, bud, is there any way you could preach? And he said, yeah. And so uh, he stepped up, and he did a great job the past two weeks, and we're very thankful for that. And it's been fun having a mix between the Old Testament and the New Testament, hasn't it, um, from the pulpit. And so we're thankful for that and thankful that the Lord's brought us here this morning. Um, like Dylan said a few Sundays ago, we, had, uh, we were blessed to have some of our international missionaries visit us from North Africa. And uh, they're doing some amazing gospel ministry over there. And I'm like, kind of like Dylan said, I'm not going to mention their names because this is recorded and we don't want it posted online. But <clears throat> one of the ways that, that our missionaries are recruiting Christians um, to, to help minister in North Africa is, is by running this website called PrayForNorthAfrica.com. I don't know if any of you had a chance to check that out yet, but um, it says on the site that in their area where they're ministering, there are about 194 million people. And they're almost all Muslims, and there are less than 0.2% Christians there out of 194 million. And so now to break that down even further, okay, within that 194 million, uh, they estimate there, there are 154 unreached people groups, okay? Now what that means is that uh, a people group each has its own unique culture and language, and none of those people have access to the gospel of Jesus. None of those people groups have, are hearing the gospel of Jesus, have heard the gospel of Jesus, um, and none of them have the Bible in their own language. And we want to change that, right? And so we and other churches are partnering with this couple and with their team to spread the gospel of Jesus in that part of the world. We just gave our offerings. We, we donate, uh, we don't, well, we, we partner with them. We give $3,600 a year or $300 a month to this couple so that we can spread uh, the kingdom of Jesus in North Africa with them. And in addition to that, we want to pray as individuals and as a church family for our missionaries like we did this morning. We want to serve with our overseas missionaries like Dylan and Natalie are doing. We want to be an encouragement to them and help come alongside them however we can to help them. And we want to encourage them when they're with us, right? Uh, it isn't often that they get back to the States, but it was so great to hang with them and just encourage them and tell them we love them and uh, thankful uh, that we have the opportunity to minister with them and through them because they're willing to go. Some of the last words uh, Jesus spoke before returning to heaven uh, are recorded in Acts 1.8. And he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And again, those are kind of concentric circles moving out from Jerusalem. And so far in the book of Acts, we've seen how uh, the first Christians were Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem first. And then this great persecution in Jerusalem happened that scattered the Christians all throughout the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria where those Christians continued to be Jesus' witnesses. And the only place left to witness for Jesus then is the end of the earth, which obviously is a much greater task. And ironically, the end of the earth in Jesus' day 
was the same region that we Americans might consider the end of the earth, North Africa. It's not interesting. In Jesus' day, the Roman Empire, if you look at a map, it's pretty amazing what, how much the Roman Empire dominated and ruled. Uh, but it stretched all the way basically around the Mediterranean Sea and to North Africa. North Africa is, was the very edges of the end of the world as, as they understood that. And that is still the area where uh, that greatly needs Jesus today. And it's one of many areas. But it's interesting that in today's passage of Scripture, we're going to see how God began to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. And he did it by pursuing one man from North Africa. Which I think is so cool because this ties in perfectly with Dylan and Natalie and what they're doing and in our efforts to bring this around as we seek to bring more North Africans to Jesus today. So if you have your Bible with you, then please open with me to Acts chapter 8. And we'll start at verse 26. Before we read this, let's, uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather. May we not take that for granted. We thank you that we can worship you. We, we thank you that we can um, freely assemble, worship you with our words here publicly. And God, we confess we are slow to understand you. We are slow to change. And we are nothing without you. Um, you tell us apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we recognize that. And we just ask you, Lord, to teach us now, please, and to help us through your word. Use your word, God, which is alive and active, to, to make us more like you. To give, make our hearts want what you want. Holy Spirit, please fill us with power and courage to follow you and to obey you. And again, we pray for protection physically and spiritually now. We pray, God, for those kids next door and in the nursery that your Holy Spirit would touch their hearts too as they encounter you through your word now. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we're going to take this just kind of in chunks today start by reading Romans 8, 26 to 28. <clears throat> now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Okay, let's stop there. So Philip, remember, he was this Christian man who, who loved the Lord. He was considered a very godly, trustworthy man by the early church. Uh, the early church chose him to be one of those seven men in Jerusalem, uh, responsible for taking care of the widows there. And after a while, the Lord expanded Philip's ministry. He sent uh, Philip through the persecution to the surrounding area of Samaria. And there, Philip shared the gospel with the Samaritans, and God worked through them and uh, worked through him to reach them there. And, and then, 
the Lord now tells Philip that he has more work for him to do. So the Lord sends an angel to Philip in Samaria, and he tells him to go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Um, we don't have a map right now, but if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can look at that or you can check this out later. But God called Philip to leave the Samaritans, okay, and to go to a new place far away. This was not convenient for Philip. Okay, that's one of the things when you look at a map, you see. Uh, the road that the Lord called him to go to was about 30 to 50 miles south. And it was basically on the road to nowhere. It was the complete opposite direction from the northward trek that he had been making. It, this was a calling to a desert place. Okay, this wasn't a, a calling to a lavish place. This was, he's calling him to the desert. And the Lord doesn't appear really to give Philip many uh, specifics about what he's going to do there or what to expect there. But verse 27 says that Philip rose and he went. So here we learn something about God and we learn something about Philip. First, this is important, the fact that God sends an angel to Philip reminds us that this whole mission of taking the good news of Jesus to the end of the earth, this whole mission of making disciples of all nations is God's mission, okay? This mission has been initiated by God and this mission will be completed by God. And God has said he will do it through us. Through you and me, the local church. Because we Christians are the instruments he's chosen to use. And, and since the advancement of the gospel to the end of the earth is his mission, then we know with confidence that it will be completed, right? If it was up to me, I wouldn't have much confidence that this thing's gonna get done. If it was up to you, sorry, I wouldn't have much confidence. I love you, but... Um, the fact is, this mission is so great. It requires such spiritual um, intervention and miracles to make the dead born again that only God himself could do it. And so we're so thankful that he is the one behind it all. And we know that God's not gonna fail at advancing his kingdom and spreading his gospel and his wisdom and timing. His gospel will eventually be heard and believed by people from every one of those 154 unique people groups and all the other 6,000 people groups and unreached peoples of the world until Jesus' name is worshiped by churches of every tribe and every tongue on this planet. We know that. Revelation 7 says it. And so God is redeeming. What he's doing is he's redeeming. He's buying back. He's, he's, he, he's bought them back on the cross, but he's applying that purchase to redeem back all peoples who were lost to sin. He's came to seek and to save the lost. He's making those people who were once enemies friends with him again as they trust in his life and his death and resurrection alone. And knowing this, knowing that God has initiated this mission, that he's the one uh, who will bring it to completion through us, what should this do? Well, this should give us great confidence as we tell people about Jesus, okay? Because God doesn't merely want to save people. God will save people. That's what it means. Hear that? God doesn't just want it to happen. He says he will 
make it happen. He is, God is preparing God-ordained conversations for you and for me with non-believers, right? God is putting people in our lives with whom he wants us to rub shoulders. God is preparing hearts to trust in Jesus. And every time we love our neighbors and speak kindly to them about Jesus, this is what God is doing. He's working in their lives through us. That's what he's happened. He's working in their life through us. Regardless of how they respond to the love of God in Jesus Christ, God is working through the message of the gospel and he will save his people. That's what he says. John 6, 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. (laughs) Amen. That's great news. So that means that success in evangelism or sharing your faith with others is speaking the gospel of Jesus to others with, with gentleness and respect. Uh, and, then, and then obviously we saturate our conversations with prayer before and after, and we leave the results with the Lord because God has called us to be seed planters, right? The Bible says that God is the one who brings the plant to life, and he's the one who makes it grow. We are the seed planters. We cast the seeds. And, and God sending this angel to Philip reminds us that he's the one orchestrating this whole thing. Uh, Philip responds by glorifying God. And how does he do that? Well, he says, okay, God, I'll go. And then he goes. So he obeys God. And he goes where he tells him to go. And sometimes this is what God does. He, he tells us to go somewhere often outside of our bubble. He tells us to trust him that he's up to something, even when he doesn't show us the whole picture. And when God does that, we glorify him by obeying him, by saying, okay, God, I'll go. By putting our foot forward in faith, by following him where he's leading us, and by trusting God with the outcome. And that's what Philip did, and he, he left Samaria. He hiked down to that desert road uh, way south of Jerusalem, and on that road there was an Ethiopian, we read, a, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, who was queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. This, this Ethiopian man had come to Jerusalem to worship, and now he was returning. He was seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So this Ethiopian man from the end of the earth is the one man whom God wants Philip to meet. And this man was very unique. He, he was not somebody with whom Philip would normally cross paths. We read four things about this man. First, he was an Ethiopian. His home was North Africa. And Ethiopia in those days doesn't refer to, didn't refer to Ethiopia as we know it. Ethiopia referred to the region of Africa just south of Egypt. It's where the country of Sudan is today. And in that ancient world, Egypt, okay, the country of Egypt was a long ways away from Jerusalem. But Ethiopia was the very edge of the empire. It was the end of the world. And this Ethiopian man came from there. He had traveled all the way from the end of the ancient world to Jerusalem. And now he was on his way back home. And obviously this man, being from Ethiopia, was not of the Jewish race. He was Ethiopian. He was probably dark-skinned. And he was a non-Jew. He was a Gentile. 
And so far, we've seen Christ, through his church, take the gospel to the Jews, to the Samaritans, who were half Jew, half Gentile. And now we see him encounter a full-blooded Gentile. So that's a little foreshadowing of what's to come here. Now, second, uh, what we know about this man is that he was a court official of Candace. It says, queen of the Ethiopians. He was in charge of all her treasure. So in other words, this man was important. He oversaw a, all of the money of the queen of Ethiopia. Okay? This was a very prestigious position that came with great responsibility. It, it obviously paid really well, too. Uh, the fact that this man is riding in a chariot indicates that he was really rich. Um, commentator Derek Thomas writes that most people traveled on foot. The prosperous rode on a donkey. Military generals rode on horseback. But a chariot signaled great wealth. And plus the fact that he was reading a copy of the book of Isaiah reveals his wealth, right? There weren't, there weren't a whole lot of copies of those Old Testament books floating around. There weren't printing presses back then, right? You couldn't go to Amazon and download this on your Kindle. Uh, each copy of the scriptures were meticulously hand copied by somebody. And when and if they made a mistake, they tore it up and started all over again. These, these were hard to come by. But this Ethiopian had a, a copy because he was really rich. And third, it says this man was a eunuch. And in the ancient world, it was common for men who worked with royalty to be eunuchs. That is, they, they had been castrated. Because, think about this, these men had all access to the queen. They had all access to her harem, and because of that, castration would ensure that men like this could be trusted, that they wouldn't be sexually tempted by uncontrollable hormones. They, they wouldn't be able to procreate and establish a dynasty that would rise up against the king and queen. And so many servant men who were very high up working with the queen were eunuchs. They were made eunuchs. And fourth, this man, it says, had come to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, and so even though this man was from the end of the earth in Ethiopia, he'd somehow been exposed to the Jewish faith at some point. And since he had traveled so far to Jerusalem in order to worship God there in the temple, then he would have been considered either a God-fearer, you read that term in the New Testament, or it's possible he was, uh, a, had been converted. He was a convert. We don't know, it doesn't say. But what's obvious, though, is at least he was a devout God-fearer. And, and like other devout Jews, he, he made regular pilgrimages to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the Jewish festivals there with God's people, uh, to worship the Lord at the temple. But because he was a eunuch, his ability to worship the Lord in Jerusalem among the Lord's people was very limited. There was a law given, and God gave a law in Deuteronomy 23, which prohibited eunuchs from entering the assembly of the Lord. And this man would have been able to visit the temple in Jerusalem, but he would have had to have stood in the outer courts with all the non-believers, with all the Gentiles. He wouldn't have been able to come into the presence of the Lord in that sense with the community of God. And that must have been very disheartening for him. He had traveled thousands of miles 
to worship the Lord. Think about that. Thousands of miles in ancient times. This isn't a train or a car or a plane. This isn't a chariot. He traveled thousands of miles, but he was forced to stand outside with all the people who didn't even worship the Lord. That's, that's as close as he could get to the Lord and his people in that sense. And so to be a God-fearing eunuch was to be a social outcast. Okay. And how ironic, think about everything else this man had in worldly goods. The Ethiopian man had great power. It doesn't, you don't get more powerful. He, he had great prestige. He had great wealth. However, where it mattered most in his relationship with God and with God's people, he was a social outcast. And so when Philip sees this man, it's probably no coincidence that this man was reading from the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah contains some specific wonderful promises for eunuchs. Like Isaiah 56, which says that a future day would come when the Lord would give believing eunuchs a name better than sons and daughters, a name that would remain forever. A name better than sons and daughters. Again, that's a family relationship. That's a relationship this man doesn't have right now. He's not even allowed in the temple. But one day, God's going to make him a son. And little did this Ethiopian eunuch know that that great day was today. Jesus had come to earth. He'd done it. He had died for sin. He'd risen again so that all who trust in him would be forever called what? The sons and daughters of God. And so now God in his grace, it's what a great picture of God pursuing people. God generously he wants this one. Everyone matters to God. Do we see that? He's going after this one guy, this Ethiopian eunuch. He's like, I want this one. And he wants him to know you're not an outcast in me. Jesus died so you wouldn't be an outcast anymore. That's awesome. And then verse 29 to 35, let's keep reading. It says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip arrived here at the desert road to Gaza, and only then... After he'd taken the step of faith by following the Lord, only then did the Lord give him further instructions. The Holy Spirit then said to Philip, go over to that chariot, and I want you to join it. And Philip said, but Lord, I don't feel called to share the gospel with the rich. No, that's not what he said, right? He said, Lord, I don't know that guy. What's he gonna think of me? No. Verse 30 says, so Philip ran to him. 
Holy Spirit prompted him, and Philip obeyed by running to him. Philip made no excuses. He just trusted the Lord. And when he got near the chariot, Philip heard the eunuch reading a passage of Scripture that he would have known really well, Isaiah 53. And running alongside that chariot, Philip looked up and he said, do you understand what you're reading? It was common in ancient times for people to read out loud. And the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come on up, sit with me. So the, 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 it says the eunuch didn't understand whether the prophet Isaiah here was writing these words about himself or about somebody else. Uh, and he'd been reading Isaiah 53, which was a prophecy, remember, written about 700 years before the birth of Christ. And it says this, rem- think about this again. It says, like a sheep, he, that's who he's trying to figure out who this was, was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its ear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And then it says that Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told the Ethiopian man the good news about Jesus. Beginning with this scripture. And it's not hard to fill in the gaps and to imagine what Philip told the eunuch. Philip told the eunuch that The sheep, this sheep who was led to the slaughter, this lamb that was silent before its shears was Jesus, the Lamb of God. And even though he was God and he had done nothing but good things and he was falsely accused, he he was denied justice, he was humiliated, his life was taken away in a cross. But God used the heinousness of a cross to provide the most glorious salvation that all of creation will ever know. Jesus became our sin on that cross. That sin that makes us guilty before God. That sin that God hates, Jesus bore it for us. And when his life was taken away, our sin was taken away with it. And Jesus killed our sin and he gave to us his own righteousness. He gave to us the righteousness of God. Jesus Jesus rose from the dead then three days later and he secured for us eternal life and eternal friendship with God. We're not God's enemies anymore. We're his friends. Jesus has reconciled us to God. That's what he's telling this guy. So, So Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, if you trust Jesus for what he did for you, then this righteousness of God, this eternal life with God is yours today. You're no longer an outcast if you belong to Jesus. Jesus became an outcast for you so that you will never be cast out. (laughs) You're no longer restricted to worshiping God in the outer courts of the temple anymore. Jesus was cast out of the temple so that you could be brought in. And you don't have to come to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple because Jesus is your temple. Jesus is your high priest. Jesus is your final sacrifice. Jesus' body was the curtain that was torn down so that now you can fully access God and worship him in spirit and in truth. And then Jesus was cast out of Jerusalem, the city of God on earth, in order to bring you into the city of God in heaven. And you're no longer a visitor to God's city, Mr. Eunuch. You're a citizen of God's city. And today, whether you live in Jerusalem or Ethiopia, you can know that you're a citizen of heaven. 
And when your life on earth ends, you're going to go live in that city where you're already a citizen and you're going to live with Jesus forever. Wow. And when Jesus died on that cross, he was cast out of the land of the living in order to bring you into the true land of the living. See, real life is when you know Jesus Christ personally and eternally and joyfully. So trust in Jesus, Mr. Eunuch, because Jesus became an outcast for your sake so that you will never be cast out. And the same message, the exact same message is true for you and me today. Trust in Jesus and be saved today. If you feel like a social outcast, then do not allow other people's opinions of you to keep you away from God because Jesus came for you. Jesus became an outcast for you so that even if you are an outcast on earth, you will never be cast out of heaven. Those are awesome promises. That's truth, that's reality, that's what we have to cling on to, the promises of God's word. And then verse 36 says, and as they were going along the road, they they came to some water, and the eunuch said, so here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? Okay, so the very fact that this man wants to get baptized immediately tells us that he did believe And he did trust in Jesus to save him. And praise God. Now, um, some of your translations might include a verse 37. And some of your translations might include verse 37 in parentheses. And some of your translations might not include verse 37. I thought it was worth noting just for a second. Here's what the missing verse 37 says. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, the reason that many translations do not include verse 37 is because this verse is not found in the earliest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and this verse is not found in the majority of Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. Now, whether or not you include verse 37 does not change the meaning of the passage at all, right? The point is that the eunuch responded to the gospel message in faith, and now he wants to be baptized, so Philip has, has apparently, in explaining the gospel um, and its outworking in this man's life, he's explained that if he trusts in Jesus, then he should be baptized in Jesus' name. And this is really cool. Philip and the eunuch just happened to come by a pool of water in the middle of a desert. Okay? This, uh, I read a little bit about this. There, there weren't pools of water on this road, Okay? It was very rare to have a pool of water in the middle of the desert. But this is a reminder. God's at work, and he's the one bringing this thing to completion. Okay? And verse 38 says, And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Matthew 28, 19-20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus, he obviously shared with him the command to be baptized. 
And it was so clear to the eunuch that he, that he, he should be baptized, that the first sight of water, he, he's like, what's stopping me? And baptism, it, it is simply a word that means to be dipped or immersed in water. And it is an outward sign that Jesus gave us. It's, it's an outward sign of the new covenant that we have in him, that Jesus saves and unites to himself everyone who turns from sin and turns to him for salvation. Thus, baptism, the act of baptism, saves no one. Baptism forgives no one. Rather, baptism is an outward sign that a person has already been saved, already been forgiven by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when the believer is dipped under water, it signifies his or her old life dying with Jesus who washed away their sins. And as they come out of the water, it signifies his or her being born again and raised to new life in Jesus Christ. And praise God, we've had several baptisms this year and and, uh, even this summer. So this is an interesting question. If you are a believer in Jesus and have not been baptized, then how would you respond to the eunuch's question? What's preventing you from being baptized? That's what he says. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Here's some water. Let's do it. Um, What is preventing you from being publicly identified with Christ and with his church? And I understand. I've talked to enough people about this to know that it gets complicated. But I would say this. Don't let shame or embarrassment or fear or anything else keep you from baptism because God loves you. And we love you. This isn't a punishment. You became a Christian, go get baptized. No. This is a celebration of what Jesus has done and what he's still doing in our lives. And I would also say this. Maybe you're somebody who's been a Christian for a long time and and, um, Maybe you feel like, man, I can't get baptized because I should have been baptized a long time. Man, forget about that. Nobody cares about that. If God's putting it on your heart, if you're reading his scripture and saying, you're like, I need to get baptized, be baptized. (laughs) Be baptized. And if you have questions about baptism, please, please ask. Please come talk to me or one of the elders after the church. We'd love to talk to you about that. But obviously we see here, even from the first generation of the church, Baptism was central to the, the gospel ministry. Um, and then we read in verses 39 to 40, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I like to say Caesarea because that's how they said it in the Roman Empire, okay? Um, we say little Caesars. In the Roman Empire, they called it Kaiser, not Caesar. Um, after Philip baptizes the eunuch, the Lord continues his work in the life of Philip and in the life of this Ethiopian man. Um, we see that as Philip is walking out of the pond of water, the Holy Spirit supernaturally makes Philip disappear, and he carries Philip many miles away now to a town on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea called Azotus. And one reason we know that Philip was carried away supernaturally is because verse 40 says that Philip found himself at Azotus. Okay? He didn't walk there. He miraculously found himself in Azotus, Maybe it was instantaneously, we don't know, but it is not um, 
the first time we've read about this kind of thing happening in scripture, it's very reminiscent of what happened to Jesus and his disciples. But the Lord had more work for Philip to do. And so basically, if you were to see a map, he's down here on the southern end of the Mediterranean Sea um, on the southeast coast. And he sends Philip up here. And so Philip is walking up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And it says, he preached the gospel to every town he came to until he got to Caesarea, which was the main port city. And that's the last we hear about this, this cool guy named Philip for another 13 chapters. And while Philip is carried away to Azotus, verse 39 says that the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And so, okay, so let's review all of this. Okay, this is quite a day. The eunuch had a providential meeting with one of the seven deacons of Jerusalem named Philip. Philip explained to him how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of Scripture. Philip shares the good news about salvation in Jesus with, with this man. The eunuch repents and believes the gospel. And then at that moment, they happen to come upon a pool of water in the middle of the desert. Philip baptizes the eunuch, and the eunuch sees Philip miraculously vanish into midair. What a day. Okay. So how does the eunuch respond to this? It says he rejoices. He rejoices all the way home to Ethiopia. He rejoices in his new life in Jesus Christ and everything that this means for him now as a son of God, no longer an outcast, but a member of God's family forever. And no doubt he went to tell the Ethiopians all about it. I mean, if you haven't repented and trusted in Jesus for life, I hope that you will do that today because just like the Ethiopian eunuch discovered, your money can't save you. It can't give you what you need most. Your power and your work and your position, it can't save you. It can't give you what you need most. Your family, your peers can't give you what you need most. Jesus is what, who can give you what you need most. He is what you're looking for, and he's who you were created for. And if you're a believer, then I want to share with you three brief applications from today's passage. Man, I could do a whole other sermon on applications, but here's just a few. First, when you read the Bible, look for ways that it points to Jesus. Okay? All of Scripture, this is, this is, if we divide Scripture into the categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, we see those four categories throughout Scripture. And we see in every passage of Scripture how, how miserable and broken we are as human beings, right? If, if we're humble enough to see it. And if God helps us see that. If we don't see it in Scripture, often God will break us in our own lives and say, you're miserable without me. And at that point, we have two ways to respond. Either we say, forget you, God. Or we say, God, you're right, I need you. We see this in Scripture. We see a need for a Savior from this terrible predicament of, of sin and the, 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 the catastrophic consequences it's brought on our world and on every human being. And we see how we will only be most satisfied when we're satisfied by something that doesn't come from within the world, but outside of the world, and that's God himself. 
few little things. Man, if you have a little one, or if you're a new Christian, or if you want to have it really laid out for you real clearly, I would encourage you to do this. A lot of you have this book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon. You should just have it. Because this book simply and beautifully goes through all the main stories of the Bible and shows how they point forward to Jesus. Sometimes I get calls like, man, I just came to Christ, learning how to read the Bible. How do I do that? Get the Jesus Storybook Bible. Really. It's, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, and this also feeds into exactly, I want you to see this, what we're doing through our, our teaching ministry from the three-year-olds up through the children's ministry up to the teenagers and Sunday school up to the Sunday school class we're going to offer this fall for adults up to the pulpit. What you'll see is Dylan and me and it is so cool on staff um, where we, we have a united front here where we want all of us to see Christ in all of scripture. That's what we want. And that's why, Dylan, we're going through some hard books of the Old Testament so that we can see this isn't just some isolated rogue book. This is a part of redemptive history in which God was pointing us to himself, just like he does before the cross and after the cross, okay? So, um, man, please be here next Sunday. Kim's been working on this day for six months, okay? This is Gospel Project Sunday. We got these people from Nashville coming out to celebrate with us. It's a big deal. They're doing a video about our church <laughs> um, to advertise to the world. I mean, they have a, over a million people who are using this curriculum, and they chose our church. It's very exciting. And I'm so thankful for all of the families, parents, and volunteers who have made this happen. Because that was one thing Kim and I were talking about. This sort of thing doesn't happen unless you have a lot of people on board. Um, next Sunday, just so you know, it's, this service is going to look a little bit differently. We're going to have a lot of kid involvement. It's going to be really fun. Um, and we're going to have that barbecue afterward. This is what I was going to say. Then the following Sunday, okay, we start Sunday school. And we're going to continue in the chapel. Uh, the, yes, in the chapel, uh, Chris Meyer and some of the elders are going to be rotating the J.I. Packer book, Knowing God, awesome theology book. Encourage you to be part of that. And then also, if you want to be part of this gospel project um, curriculum, we're, we're starting a six-week class taught by Rob Buchanan called the Gospel Project for Adults, and specifically looking at how does Genesis point to Jesus? How does the book of Genesis point to Jesus and to our need for him? That's going to meet in room, what do we call that room? Room one? Okay, room one, back there. <laughs> Starts at 8.45. Um, we would love, love, love for you to be, be part of that. Um, okay, that's the first thing. See Jesus in all scripture. Second, and wh where did I get that? Because that's what Philip did with the eunuch there, okay? Second, the, the, the second application for us is to be on the lookout for non-believers that you can have spiritual conversations with. Be on the lookout for them. I know that for me, and sometimes the reason I don't have more conversations about my faith is simply because I'm not thinking about having spiritual conversations with people, right? I'm thinking about how do I get my kids to church? How do I get from A to B? What's the next phone call I gotta make? I, I need, but we, we need to learn to be present. That is something we need to learn. Who's God putting right in front of us that uh, 
that he wants us to interact with. Let's be praying for spiritual conversations, uh, praying for non-believers that God would put in our lives so that we can Okay, so that we can witness to Jesus. Um, I like what Pastor Tony Merida says. He says, this is really good, okay? I don't think you need to feel led to share the gospel with people before you actually do so because the Lord has given us a great commission to, do, to obey. He gives us all the license we need to go out every day and make the gospel known. Nevertheless, we should pray for divine opportunities and remain open and sensitive to the Spirit prompting, Spirit's promptings. But if we use the excuse of, I'm a little nervous about talking to that person about Jesus, I don't think God's leading me to do that, <laughs> right? That's not a solid theology you're working with there, okay? That's the theology of emotionalism. And what we need to be is, uh, have is a theology of, of the Bible. And the Bible says, man, even when it is maybe a little difficult. If God's prompting us to do this, let's just be faithful. Doesn't mean you have to thump someone over the head with a Bible. But it means, hey, I just want you to know God put you on my heart. I just want to see if you're okay. And start talking to him, right? Um, and the third uh, application I would say is this. We've seen this in Acts we would be foolish to think that we can advance the kingdom, have spiritual conversations with others, convince anyone that Jesus is God if we were relying on the power of our flesh. We need to pray for supernatural boldness and help to speak the gospel. If you remember back in Acts 4.29, the Christians gathered together and prayed to God and asked him to allow them to speak the gospel with boldness, with courage. And, uh, and that's what we need today too. Um, when I look at, you know, some of you, I would say, have the gift of evangelism. God's put that passion in your heart and you happen to be pretty good at it. God works through you in a special way. But that doesn't mean you're the only one called to share your faith. We're all called to share our faith. And that, that can be hard I was talking to a guy the other day who, who's pretty good at it, and I said, do you ever get nervous? He's like, yeah, all the time. I'm like, oh, okay, good. Um, but we need, that's why we need prayer. This is what Jesus means when he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to be plugged into Jesus, and we need him speaking through us. That's what we need. Um, May God fill us with his love and kindness and heart for people so that even in those moments, uh, maybe where conversations get heated around the dinner table or at the holidays or, or whenever, that, uh, that we can uh, display the fruits of the Holy Spirit in us. We should not expect people without the Holy Spirit to display the fruit of the Spirit. But we hope and pray that we would, right? As we consider this, as we consider Jesus, as we consider his pursuit of outcasts and people, as we consider how he has taken outcasts like us and saved us so that we will never be cast out, we want to celebrate the communion of our Lord's Supper together now. Um, as our servers prepare to come forward, let's just take a few minutes to silently talk to the Lord, to thank him, to confess sin if we need to, to pray for others. Just a few minutes silently with God before we take the Lord's Supper.